Welcome back, Rebels. Welcome back. How's your week been? That's you, Adam, not the not the audience as a whole. Although I do worry about how their week has been as well, but they can't reply, so... It's a one-sided conversation, that, isn't it? Uh, my week has been good. Um, it's been very, very productive. Uh, I've done a lot of different things. Uh, and then also, you you persuaded me to go outside my comfort zone a little bit. Oh, how have I done that? Uh, so I saw you post on your um, Instagram. I'm guessing you're, you're injured of, or something at the moment based on... Um, the latest posts that you've put up uh, but they're just a bit different to what you normally do yeah i've got a back a back pain injury that um has sort of been nagging since january really it keeps um coming back and coming going off and coming back again and i was really terrified about um stopping producing content for instagram after some recent interviews that we've done i've been really thinking a lot about well how important is it to keep up the the relentless slog of social media and feeding the beast? Yeah. Balanced alongside of my account's really growing at the moment. I've got this momentum. It would be a shame to see it all fall down. Um, but when it got to the stage of like, okay, I'm out there, I'm doing a mural and then the next two or three days, my back is really, really hurting me. I was like, well, obviously this is a this is a silly question. Like I, I, obviously Instagram is not as important as my general health and well-being. Yeah. So um, I had a week off and then I sort of, then I was sort of looking at other ways of doing things and I wondered if there would be a way to bring my neon work to paper. Because if I could paint it on paper, then I wouldn't have to be going up and down a ladder, which I'm pretty sure is what's um, what's injuring me at the moment. And so I bought £150 worth of materials. I bought coloured pencils. I bought neon acrylic paints. I bought all of this stuff. Um, and then I spent the uh, then I spent about a week and a half being miserable um, because everything <laughs> that I was trying was not translating, was not doing what I wanted it to do, was not behaving how I wanted. So I phoned Jonathan one day and I said, this is going extremely badly. I'm going to come home. I'm going to lay on the sofa and I'm going to watch Succession because that's my favorite TV show. <laughs> and she said to me, well, everything is figure outable. I was like, oh, you absolute shit. Because she bloody quoted something that I always say to her ever since we had Marie Forleo. Yeah. And I'm like, well, don't worry about it. Everything's figure outable. We'll get to a, an answer in the end. And I was like, oh, I don't want you to say that. I just want you to go, yeah, come home and lie on the sofa and be a fucking useless lump. Yeah. So she suggested, why don't you use spray paint, which is something that I hadn't thought of doing on paper because it doesn't translate well to paper. So she went through a method of, of how it might work. And I was like, that will never work. I talked to her, talked her down. I was like, no, that won't work. <laughs> anyway, while she was on the phone, I just tried it to, and I, my whole mood changed and I went, oh my God, you're an absolute genius. This does work. Uh, it does exactly, it behaves on paper exactly how it would on a wall. Um, you've saved my life. You've saved my career. Um, and so now, yeah, that's just allowed me to keep producing work. I'm able to put out some stuff on Instagram, but I did have a real feeling of panic when it came to all of a sudden, I've only been posting neon murals for the past year. Yeah. All of a sudden doing something different, like this is work on paper. How is this going to be received? Um, it is different, although it's same but different. It is different. It's a different medium. It's it's. I know there's something impressive to people about something being done on a huge scale. I lose all of that. Um, so I was really nervous. Had that week we not interviewed Erica Lee Sears, which is an upcoming interview that we've coming out, and, and Poppy Chancellor. Had I not done those interviews, I don't know that I would have posted the work on paper. Uh, actually listening to them gave me the confidence boost of 
let's try something new and see how it goes down. At the end of the day, it's a post. It can be deleted. It doesn't matter if no one likes it. Yeah. And the other side of it was I'm really enjoying making these works on paper and I'm enjoying doing something different. I'm enjoying resting my body after just an extreme amount of up and down ladders and, and outside and all of that sort of stuff. So tried it, went for it. it it's been met really well and, and all of my fears were allayed and it's been, yeah, it's been a good week. So much of what we talk about is sharing the process, kind of not being scared to put out the process. And I almost feel like the pieces you've put out, um, the two posts that you've done recently are both part of the process. It's like, obviously, yes, they are finished pieces of work, but they're something that could lead to something else. I think showing those experimentations, showing that you can do other things and the world not ending when you actually post them. Because I feel like there's definitely that fear that we have around oh, but if I try something different and people know me for this, then they might not like it and it mm. might not get as many likes, which means it's not as good. And that takes me back to when we were interviewing Martina Martian and she's obviously transformed from being an illustrator to a photographer. And there's that transition period there of her posting photography things and them not getting the same response that her illustrations would be there because it's, but it's like, but that's what she wants to be doing at the time. And I think it's, is important to actually not worry so much about what and what the audience is always thinking and sometimes worrying about yourself and how you're growing and how you're developing because at the end of the day that's more important than anything your personal growth like if you can see yourself if you just do the same thing every day you get the same results so by forcing yourself into things that do feel a bit uncomfortable or something that like obviously as you said there you're like well that won't work something that kind of even gets over something that maybe you've tried in the past and it didn't work in the way you thought it would, but then actually trying it again when you've got more experience can lead to different results sometimes. Well, you know what? Part of me is actually, and I I probably won't do this, but part of me is thinking about putting up the failures. They are horrifically bad pieces of art. They're they're really bad, dude. I, I showed them to um, a friend of ours the the other day, and he, he yeah he couldn't believe it. He was like, I can't believe you. I can't <laughs> believe you made that. And he couldn't believe what a jump to to the stuff that I'm putting out on paper now, just through through one change of technique. Um, I don't think I'll have the confidence to actually do it, but it's sort of one of those ones where you sort of feel like that that humanizing you and and portraying yourself as actually an artist who does do experiments and they don't always go correctly it would probably be really powerful well something that i'm seeing a lot on instagram at the moment is when people just do like um camera roll dumps and it seems to be like a bit of a trend that's happening at the moment where someone will just go and post 10 pictures of random things that happened that week in a little collection and it's just like oh here's a camera roll dump here's just my week in random photos so i think what you could do is i suppose like firstly to get over that fear is maybe post like a this is the one that I chose and that's the one that kind of sits on your feed and that's like the, the first one in the carousel effectively and then this is how I got here and then like then there's kind of like eight or nine trials in that getting to that point I think that would be a really interesting point because it's like then most people are just going to see the perfect thing but if they're interested then they can swipe through and see the progress that you made to get there I suppose it's only the same as showing a video of you starting a piece from start to finish where for the first 60 70 percent of it it actually mm. doesn't look very good at all it looks like a sketch so i suppose it's just the same as that but just doing it in reverse and thinking okay well here's the final piece now here's how i got here rather than here's how i got to the final piece I, like i felt really really real fear of of like 
my career is crumbling. Like I've built, I've spent the past year building this and now I'm physically not able to go outside and paint these murals. Like all of my opportunities are going to stop and I'm, I'm screwed. I actually felt that yeah. really real fear. And then when the paper stuff wasn't working, I was just like desperate. I was like, well, what, what am I going to do? How am I going to fill my time? Like I, I make work, like what, what am I going to do with this time? And everything I'm making here is really bad. And um, one of the th- one of the things I said to to Yana was like, I I know she was like, you talk about this on the podcast all the all the time. You've just got to practice and get good. And I was like, yes. However, I don't have like I could now go and take a a course and learn how to use acrylic paints from scratch. But I don't like yeah. I don't haven't got a spare ten years. Like I've got my ten years of art skills that have got me up <laughs> to this point. But I don't have another ten years to add on a completely new skill into the mix that's something that can i can gradually be working on now in the background but like all of a sudden i had nothing to post and and nothing to do and that was that was a really scary position to be in and it yeah it comes back to that everything on the feed looking perfect no if if we were totally accepting then i would have thrown up all of the the experimentations and go and said like oh not having a great week in the studio this week here's failure one two and three but no one like that's that's not really yeah. what people want to see how did my experimentations um feed into your work yeah so i saw you put up those and i saw that um the captions on it were really kind of descriptive as well about how you were feeling kind of like nervous about posting them and then by the time it got to a second one it was like okay you could see a bit of kind of an evolution there and i was like oh actually that's really interesting like i wonder if i could do that because like my work is like very uniform like everything kind of follows a certain pattern as i go through and i was like Sometimes like when I'm just kind of playing around on Photoshop, I'll just start playing around with different things, just experimenting. I suppose the same way that if you've got some new art materials, you just kind of like have a play like, oh, how does this media work compared to this other media? Yeah, so I'll quite often just like have a play around. And then I started editing a photo and I was like, just in one of those moods where I was just like, oh yeah, I'm just going to get a bit creative on this and just play around. And I probably won't post it, but it's just kind of a, a good way to just kind of hone my Photoshop skills and see if I can push things in areas that I couldn't normally do. Um, and then I was like, actually, yeah, I'm just going to go all in on this and just carry on going with it and then post it. And it's going to be, it's going to look different to my normal stuff, but it's still going to kind of have that similar feel. But then when it came to actually posting it, I literally felt like a bit sick. Like I, kind of felt like almost like anxious in my chest like this really weird feeling of like oh my god like what if people don't like it and again it's just it's so irrational because I know that even if I did put up something that was awful all my fat like followers aren't going to disappear tomorrow all the work's not going to dry up but you just you build up this idea in your head of like you've built this huge castle like this huge house of cards and all it takes is one little flick on the bottom for it all to come absolutely crumbling Whereas it doesn't really work like that. It's more like building a castle out of brick. And if you flick the bottom, nothing actually happens. Um, but yeah, it was actually like, I got positive response from it. Didn't get the same response as I'd get on normal things. But I got a different response, which was what was really interesting. And lots of people who I know really like my work kind of messaged me and were like, oh, this is really cool. Like, I really like what you've done here. And then someone actually reached out and said that, oh, I'm actually, I've got um, a single coming out like later in the year. I've just seen that piece you've dropped. I didn't realize you did stuff like that. I'd love to, for you to shoot my single cover. And it was like mad. Like this is me doing something that I thought no mm. one would like, which actually led to something that could potentially become something really fun. And like the project sounds really like interesting. And yeah, that wouldn't have happened unless 
firstly, your back was bad to put me out to kind of think like, actually, I'm going to try that too. But yeah, it's funny how like sometimes it just it does just take kind of going against what your brain is telling you is the right thing to do. Um, and it can actually become something really, really good. Yeah, the butterfly effect of I, I just I just can't imagine what our life would be like if we hadn't done the podcast. It's so it's so strange to think about um, mm. because I, I like directly my life is affected by um, lessons that we're that we're learning from these guests and I and it's beautiful to yeah. know that other people are listening to these conversations these aren't just you and me in a vacuum with with an amazing creator and it's it's incredible to know that these these conversations like butterfly effect how many creators they're helping and how much it is changing in the world of of yeah just just we don't know how after this in listening to this intro how many people will be going well you know what i was sitting on this but actually maybe now i'm going to post and that's going to change the course of someone's life potentially like because if you do yeah. that if you do that single cover then who sees that and what comes from that and what doors are open from that it's just it's such a it's so crazy to think about man it's mad and like that just like it just reminds me of like this this week's guest cal newport we've read a number of his books which are all bloody amazing uh, and it's realizing that like if you write a book if you create something and just put it out there you don't know who that's going to land on you don't know who's going to hear it you don't know how that's going to benefit someone else's life in some way and i think that can also be like the reason to just put things out it reminds me of what marie folio said as well it's like if you don't do it you're stealing from people and it's like just by being so like all it takes is for that one little thing to resonate with someone resonate with one person it's like that's why on this show we have such diverse guests because it's like you'd never know who's listening and how that one person's voice can benefit that one person that needs to hear that thing right in that moment. Yeah, it's it's um it's such a trip for us to to be sitting with people that we've looked up to for so long. I mean, first read Deep Work by Cal Newport uh, way before we had this podcast and to now yeah. be in the same rooms as these people is is an absolute trip. And I, I think I was really, I was really trying to delve down into what what fascinates me, so like why I always buy Cal's books, um, and I, I really feel that there's there's he's trying to get people to create their best work, um, and I think so much mm-hmm. of that spills over into what our mission is is kind of becoming in life. It is to to try and get people to really push themselves to to do great work. I think one of our really popular episodes with was with Nir Eyal and the it resonated with so many people of how distracted they were by digital devices and by yeah. just other other meaningless other meaningless stuff in their lives and how important it, it is to do the work I, I think I mean that's what deep work is about it's about like creating like sitting down and, and making the work and so much of what we talk yeah. about is resonating on those themes of of like put your best self out there like like get better try new things um and and like based on the past 15 minutes like we really struggle with that sometimes if you can get yourself out of the comfort zone and you uh, and not quitting as well i mean like like i i was so close to quitting and it took yana saying to me everything is figure outable for me to like keep going and, and try a couple more things to get to that to get to that stage i think it's so important, like doing doing the work. So much of what Cal talks about, as you were saying there, is all the things that take us away from the work. And I think it's those things that we need to look at and work out, or how can we reduce those as much as possible? Uh, for example, Cal's new book is all about how to get rid of emails. Like emails take up so much of people's times and a lot of people's jobs 
just revolve around being sat in their email inbox and just responding to things all day. And it's like, by doing that, it's taking them away from the work that's important, the work that is meaningful to them. Because I don't imagine there's many people who are like, writing emails is so meaningful and it's what my purpose on this earth is to write emails and sit in email chains and yeah, be email person. What is so great about Cal is yeah, he constantly goes back to do the work, get better and do more work. Yeah, absolutely. I th- I think this is a a really great episode. I think it might be one of those ones that people have to listen to a couple of times because on on my definitely. on my second listening of it, it I I definitely picked up stuff that I'd skimmed over during the interview because he's he's just so good at like packing so much into to what he says. Uh one of the things that he was talking about is network switching about how our brain how it takes so much brain power to move from one task to the other. And I know a lot of uh, creators listen to us in their studios i know that r- currently right now you you may be really on a roll you might be in flow state you're you're perfectly creating if you get now get a ding of uh, of an email coming through it's going to distract you and uh, um and we really delve down into those topics in this episode so i think it's a really valuable one so let's get into it with uh, cal newport cal newport is a computer scientist and a best-selling author uh, as we mentioned, he's, he's written some of our favourite books, and this is a good one. Hi, Cal. Hello. Welcome to the show. How's everything going? Uh, everything is going well. As we, as we were talking off the camera, Google conspired to try to stop us from having this podcast by tricking us with time zones and hiding your emails. And and I think we all agree that it's probably on purpose. You know, Google has it out for me because of my anti-email stances. But we are defying we are defying the system and still getting this underground conversation out there. <laughs> I love it. I've, I've got quite a, um, a deep question to begin with for you, Cal. Um, and maybe it's too deep, but we'll, but we'll see. Um, why do you make the kind of work that you make? Like, what is your mission? Because um, we all are very distracted and all of your books seem to be although they're very different, there's kind of underlying themes. What is it that, that, what's your mission and what drives you to make this work? Well, you know, I'm, I'm a hopeless writing addict. So uh, first of all, just I can't not write. That is sort of an issue. I always tell myself I'm going to take breaks and then I go off and sell a couple books instead. So I, <laughs> I have a hard time not writing. So let's just make that the background substrate. I've been writing books professionally since I was 21 years old. There's been no period of my adult life where I wasn't working on books in the background. So Given that foundation, the question is, what would I be writing about? And a lot of those books track issues of concern to me. I mean, I'm in a I'm in a creative field that's not seen maybe traditionally as like an artistically creative field, but I am a theoretical computer scientist and I solve proofs, and it's very creative work. You you have to come up with mathematical insights through inspiration on the fly, and in that type of field, things like concentration is really important. Uh, things like distraction plays a really big role, right? So I'm in a world where I think a lot about my mind. I think a lot about what my mind is exposed to. And as a computer scientist, I think a lot in particular through the lens of technology and what its role is in those distractions, in those exposures. And so those two things coming together, (laughs) I can't help but write. And also I'm in a creative field in which I really care and think a lot about my mind and my ability to do things with my mind that I'm a technologist and really have a keen eye on all these different technologies that are out there in the world and, and the way they intersect with this, this goal to try to do things creatively with your mind. That all comes together to the books I write. It makes me think of snooker, weirdly enough. So um, when, 
when like I used to watch snooker in the 80s, it would be sort of, it was kind of like a pub sport. And then gradually, bit by bit, the snooker players started to become athletes. Um, and realizing that there was sort of a, a synergy between, although you're not expending a load of energy when you're playing snooker um, and it's like the same with darts and it's the same with like a lot of, of different sports that maybe you don't have to be like really physically fit to do them there were the advantages of being physically fit by doing them and I think when it when we look at sports not that I'm a big sports <laughs> guy I don't know why I'm talking about sports but um, when we do look at sports the ability to have a clear mind I think is also becoming a trend as well as sort of being fit. Yeah, you do see it in sports. Uh, you know, I'm surprised the amount of times I'm interacting with professional athletic organizations or professional athletes. I mean, this is actually uh, not just a, a isolated example, but really a core trend I've seen. I mean, I've spoken with the UK's national rugby team. There's a lot of professional golfers who work with some of the stuff I write about in my books. I've spoken with multiple NBA team general managers but I think the bigger point you're trying to make there is, is, is good is that in general, there is a culture-wide awakening, maybe in recent years, that taking care of your mind is something that matters. You know, just like we learned in the last 50 years, oh, you kind of have to take care of your body. If you just are smoking three packs a day and eating whatever, you're probably mm. going to die in your early 60s. Oh, I see. We could do better. We should actually care about how we eat, how we exercise. I think we're undergoing a similar revolution with our mind. Because more and more of our culture, and especially our economic activity, is focused towards stuff that comes out of our brain uh, and less from our actual physical manipulation of the world. So we care more and more about our brain. I think we're really just early on in this new movement of how do we have a healthy brain? How do you take care of this thing? How do you improve this thing? How do you get good things out of it, both professionally, but also emotionally and psychologically? Fascinating question but very complex to answer yeah and i think there's almost like two ways to look at it as well there's definitely like the mental health route of how can we be better and like have a more healthy brain but i think we're also moving into a society where everything needs to be done quicker faster we need to get more done in a day and there's this kind of pressure on people to get more done so i think people are looking at well i'm drinking all the coffee i'm taking all of the external things like what else can i do to get more out of my body and i think that's where people are now looking into kind of like or how can i like hack my brain or kind of look at ways to make it work better than i'm used to it working or how can i kind of have more clarity in kind of my daily kind of process what do you think it is that's pushing people in this direction and do you think it's more for the the health side of things or more for the just how can i get as much out of my brain as possible well when we, when we look in the professional world which which is where i think the more recently emerging movement is happening. We, we have a, a slightly longer trajectory of people talking about mental health in a uh, prophylactic way, not in a, I have a serious issue I want to get addressed way, but more like I want to meditate, I want to be more mindful. This type of thinking has uh, been around since the 90s, but the professional focus on the brain I think is more interesting because it's a little bit more recent, maybe the last 10 years or so. I would actually try to separate two threads here. I mean, they're, they're there is a narrative out there that, well, there's all of these pressures to try to do more things. And to some degree, I think that's partially mixing up a few different things. I think it's partially mixing up. There is a more frenetic pace to our life and work, work is more frenetic because we use this sort of hyperactive hive mind style of email based slack work. And in our personal lives, we're more fragmented and performative because of the technology we have. I'm not quite sure in some of these instances exactly if it's a pressure to do more as much as it's just sort of frenetic and ambiguous and we're just doing lots of stuff because we don't know what else to do. 
But there's another thread of mental performance. And if you think about athletes or you think about artists or you think about people like me who solve math proofs, we have no interest in doing a lot of things, right? What we're interested in doing is the things we do well even better. And I think that's where things really get interesting when you think about mental performance, that doing more things on a task list, who cares? Producing, you know, a piece of art or a theorem or a book that is 2x better than the last one you produced, that's going to be award caliber, that's going to make an impact, that's going to be cited a thousand times. I think that's the thing that's really getting people excited when they think about how do I get more out of my brain? In other words, how do I use my brain to create things of real value? To me, that's a deep question. This other side of the professional world, we're all very busy. That's less interesting. I mean, I think people, we're not being coerced into that as much as we think. I think it's just this sort of accidental default, ambiguous autonomy. Like, I don't know what to do with my life. I, my job is ambiguous and we're on email all day because no one knows what they're doing. Like, that's a whole other issue that I've written a lot about as well. And so I see those as sort of two related, but not not exactly identical threads. You mentioned the hyperactive hive mind, which forms a big part of the new book. Could you give us a brief description of what you mean by that? This has been the real issue with knowledge work in the last 25 years. Email spread through the office uh, for very rational reasons. It's because it was a better alternative to fax machines, voicemails, and memos. These are communication that was happening and it was important. Email implemented it better. So it spread because it was a good tool. It did something better. In the wake of email spreading, it enabled a new way of collaboration in the office in which you basically just figure things out on the fly with back and forth, low friction digital messaging, right? Just we'll go back and forth on Slack or email or Teams or whatever the technology is. I don't really care about the technology. What matters here is the, the workflow, which I call the hyperactive high mind, which says we can now just work everything else, else uh, everything out on the fly with just these back and forth messages. This has been a disaster when it comes to actually doing things with your brain, because the problem about working things out on the fly with back and forth messages is that you have many, many different people that you need to be doing this with and many, many different things that you're having these back and forth conversations about. You can't let them all grind to the halt. You gotta be checking. You gotta be looking at that inbox or looking at Slack or looking at Teams because when one of these messages comes back, you have to respond pretty quickly because this is part of a tin chain back and forth and you can't have this last a whole week. So the side effect of the hyperactive high mind is everyone had to start checking communication tools in the office all the time. Once every six minutes is one of the big studies that I cite in my book. And once you have to check communication tools all the time, the partial cognitive context shifts that this is constantly creating devastates our ability to think clearly, fatigues our brain, and makes us unhappy. So we accidentally adopted a way of collaborating in the office that if we're going to talk about brain performance has made us utterly suboptimal at getting stuff out of our brain. It's, it's one of the worst ways you could actually devise to have a bunch of brains work together to try to produce valuable output. So that's network switching. And why why is that bad? What, what actually happens in our brain when we move from one task to another to another? Well, it's expensive and it's time consuming, right? So if I want to change my attention from one target to another, it could take five, 10, even more minutes. Now that's fine if you're doing one thing after another, it just means there might be a bit of a startup period when you work on the next thing before you really get up to speed and then you can really start to make progress. I think creative types are used to this. The first 10 minutes of working on something is slow. And then once you're done completely context shifting to the new thing, you really feel things start to pick up. The issue with yeah. doing lots of quick context shifts is that you initiate these context shifts, but just a minute or two into it, because you don't see the email you're looking for, you try to go back to the original things. So you abort the new context shift, try to revivify the old context shift. 
And then before that's even done, you go back and initiate a new context shift because you have to check Slack again or check email again. And so it's constantly beginning, stopping, beginning, stopping context shifts. Your brain never gets to settle on anything. So it, I mean, literally it's the cognitive equivalent of sort of having a, a, a pint of beer next to you while you try to go through your workday and every half hour you down it. <laughs> it's, it's not that dissimilar. It's just a lot less fun. It makes me think of, of a meme I saw that was a, an old uh, like MSN messenger, a picture of that. And it said, we used to say BRB and we don't say that anymore because we're always, we're always there. Um, and although the technology has empowered us in a, in so many ways and like you said fax machines and is is just inefficient there is something especially if we are constantly network switching i would imagine the pressure of having to always be on to to never be right back to always be there is probably significant as well yeah and the, and the key point about this i think it, it's really important for understanding why it's so difficult to make this office life better the this harm of having to constantly network shift is a fundamental feature of the underlying hyperactive hive mind workflow. If this is the primary means that you collaborate with other people in your organization is unscheduled back and forth messages, you have to check these things all the time, right? Because if you stop checking them, there's what, 10 or 15 different back and forth conversations that have now all ground to a halt. So the the, the big observation about this this type of work is it's, it's not just the, it's not the individual, it's not the individual having bad habits. It's not the individual being addicted to email. It's not the uh, your peers having unreasonable, you know, expectations about response times. It's the underlying way that our organization is implicitly deciding we're going to collaborate is just with these back and forth messages. And if that is our implicit decision, then it is completely rational, if not necessary, to check these inboxes all the time. So we can never solve this problem by saying everyone should just have better habits or, or we should batch or something like this. You have to actually go in and say, here is our specific alternative to the hyperactive hive mind. For this type of work we do, here's how we collaborate. Here's when we talk and how we talk. Here's how the information moves. You actually have to replace the hive mind to solve the problem. So no amount of inbox hacks or guilting you know, your, your colleagues, like, oh, it's just a, a, a personality failing my colleagues have that they, they expect responses quickly or they, they don't understand they don't have to respond quickly. No, no, it's entirely rational. You have to keep checking if that is the primary way that things actually get done. Yeah, and I think that's interesting because it's like that, because I'm thinking in terms of like how I use my emails and obviously that really applies to like collaboration. So if you're working with someone else and you're trying to do a backwards and forwards, whereas I suppose batching could work well if it's not like there's an actual collaboration going on. It's just like you're just telling someone something and it's like that can be done in that scenario. In what ways is it better to collaborate then as a team? Because like obviously for the way that kind of we work in our businesses is if we're trying to collaborate on something like obviously before COVID happened and everything went remote is we would kind of sit in a room together all discuss something and I think also if you think just about how an email thread works it's very kind of like linear in motion whereas actually if you're collaborating and trying to get some actually interesting creative thoughts out there quite often someone will say something and someone will say something else and it's like you put those two things together and that just sparks a little bit of inspiration in your brain and I feel like that seems to work so well when everyone's in like a pool and everyone's dipping into it rather than it just being in this linear chain because especially when it comes to emails which I, by the way I hate emails I think they're the worst things ever uh, but hopefully Google don't cancel me um but because it because it isn't a thread and it's like if four if people have been having a conversation and now I need to dip back into that and that's been going on for the past two hours 
then I have to read the whole thread and then you don't kind of get the context in the same way and it you just get lost in this this mess. What what way would you recommend being the best route for collaboration, uh, both kind of in kind of in person when we can do that and in a world where we're currently working remotely? Yeah, well, I mean, it's a good question because it highlights that different types of interaction, different types of tools as well are, are suited for different types of collaboration. So email as a tool, for example, uh, is very good for broadcasting information. You know, I don't want to have to Xerox a memo and put it in everyone's mailbox. Oh, email's great. I could just CC the new parking regulations for our, our office yeah. building to everyone. It's great for that. It's great for delivering like files, right? I don't have to fax you a contract. I can email it to you. It's fantastic for that. It's also really good for non-urgent, non-interactive questions. So if I have a question for you that you can answer, we don't have, you don't need any more information. You just know the answer. And it's not particularly urgent that I get the answer. Email's great for that. The asynchrony of email is great. I can say, you know, uh, like Adam, remind me again of uh, what time zone we're in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? That's, that's a great use of email, right? Because I can send it to you. And then when you get around to it, you know, okay, now I'm looking through my messages that have arrived. You can send back an answer when you're ready. Email is terrible for interaction. Mm -hmm. So whenever you have a group of people that uh, more than one person that needs to discuss something, I need something explained to me, we need to reach a decision, we need to try to come up with an idea, asynchronous back and forth messaging is a terrible way to do that. Synchronous or real-time interaction is almost always the best way to do that type of collaboration where you're in real time, everyone is there, be it virtually or in person, but the conversation is happening in real time. That is far, far superior. There's, there's exponentially more bits of information that can be transferred back and forth. It's more subtle. We can play off of each other. We can move very quickly to the regions of knowledge that we're trying to get to. It's a much more efficient way of doing things. So having some sort of uh, highly structured, real-time style conversation is the best way to make decisions. So then the, the, the issue becomes, okay, how do we do that without just falling into some sort of Zoom fatigue trap? where every time there's something that we want to do, we throw out like a Zoom invite and soon all of our days is full of Zoom meetings. And so uh, uh, care is needed to avoid that. But I think you can do that if you follow the type of things I talk about where you say, let's get much more explicit about here are the different things we do in our team or in our organization. How do we want to do these things? You start building in the structure of where's the information stored? When and how do we interact? Like, where does the files move? How do I get the answers to my questions? And that starts to put a structure to this whole process. So it's not just throwing Zoom invites out. It's, well, these things, I have office hours. Just come to my office hours and we can hash this out. There's no reason to set up a separate meeting. This is a bigger thing that happens every week. And we have this set time, we talk about it, but it's pretty structured because all the information is stored here in like a Trello board. And, and we have a structure to the meeting where we come in and everyone says what they did last week and what they're working on. Or, you know, you, you can begin, in other words, to put some structure around how this happens. But from a tool perspective, email's terrible for anything that requires interactive. I'd be interested to know what your thoughts are when it comes to like voice notes and voice memos, because I've found that, especially over the past year or two, that now rather than like writing a text, because I feel like you're getting a small amount of information across there, Actually, I'll send like long voice notes that I feel like you get your voice across, you get like you can be thinking on the go rather than having to really like refine everything. Um, what, yeah, what are your, your thoughts on voice notes? Well, I think the reason why voice notes seem more appealing is because the amount of information that's being transferred in purely linguistic communication, so just written text, is much, much smaller 
than the amount of information that is transferred in a analog voice communication. There is a huge amount of information. We don't think about this, uh, but it, you can measure this. And I talk about these studies in the book. There's a huge amount of information right now that I am conveying with my tonation, with my pacing, with the inflection on my voice, with how I pause between words. That is all lost when you go to purely linguistic text. That's why emails and texts are so often misunderstood. It's why we have to use so many things like emojis, right? It seems pretty childish, but why are we doing that? Because we're trying to make up for the massive information loss of not having tonality. If I'm talking to you, you know if I'm being sarcastic, if I'm mad, if I'm happy, if I'm bored, if I'm tired, so much information you're picking up from me. If I'm just sending you a quick text, you know, uh, where's that report? You're just guessing. I don't know. Maybe he's really mad at me, maybe whatever. Uh, and then so we try to put exclamation points and smiley faces and emojis and yeah. try to make up for it. So I think that's why the voicemail seem more appealing is because it's an incredibly richer form of communication. I, I really love emojis that because they can like pack so much information just into like one pixel, like one square can say so much. But I actually got in a fight with my girlfriend through her misunderstanding an emoji that I sent to her. And I there, and then we had this conversation afterwards of like what that emoji means to me, and it was some, meant something completely different to her. So even then, <laughs> like even then, with the the simplest form, like just a smiley face, you can still get it wrong. There's actually studies I talk about in the book where um, they measure they measure the confidence of someone about to send information via text, how confident they think it, they are it's going to be understood. And there's this real mismatch. The sender is very confident, so that's what makes it bad. We think we're like, oh, it's very clear what I'm saying. Uh, and then the receiver has no idea what you're talking about. So it's not just that it's hard to do, but we think we're good at it. And there's a whole effect to why this is, is because when you're writing something, you have the full emotional psychological context present in your head while you're writing it. So you are seeing this text in the email you're writing or in the, the SMS in the context of all the stuff in, uh, happening in your head. Like, ah, it's so clear. This is so funny. He's going to love this, right? They don't know what's going on in your head, right? <laughs> so on the other side, they're seeing that emoji. <laughs> they're seeing their emoji and be like, uh, uh, you want me to murder somebody? <laughs> what is this? Not, you know, they have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, I, I was talking to about that um, to her last night actually, because um, you give. I think the example in the book that you give that really well, really clearly explains it is when um, you try and tap out a rhythm to a song, and people predict that everyone is gonna understand what what song you're tapping out, and really a tiny percentage do because it's all all the information is in your head yep. you hear the music in your head you're like of course it's the star spangled banner right and other people are like you're just you're spastically hitting the table i have no idea what's going on here yeah that's email that that's yeah. basically email um while we've got you and we're asking um, um tips and advice from you um i'm gonna ask you this one so um you can see on my phone screen there I have 153 unread text messages. Um, the reason that I've done that was when I learnt that the um, that our apps use red in order to trigger danger in our brain, um, so that it 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 um, kind of instigates an instant response. I started leaving text messages unread as a kind of method to trick myself into the, to take the urgency away. So because it's always there it's now no longer i don't see this all of a sudden this red threat pop up am i being ridiculous by doing that no i think that's completely i think that's completely sane uh this idea there's basically yeah. two there's, yes. there's two approaches to text messaging right and and this is one that gets kind of socially fraught but i think it's important there's the 
every text message that comes is someone who's trying to talk to me and it's rude to ignore them. And then there's the, this is unreasonable because there's always text messages coming and I have other things I have to do in the world. And so uh, there are times when I look at my text messages, but no guarantees I'm going to see it. These are the two different approaches to text messages. This latter one is really the only sane approach for most people's incoming text volume. It's socially difficult because at first people don't like it. Again, it's convenient for people if you are always accessible when they have a question. They learn pretty quickly when you switch to the other mindset of like, oh yeah, you know, uh, Cal is bad at text messages, right? And there's a little bit of a social cost to it, but a massive cognitive win. And I've been trying to convert more and more people over to my text message irresponsibility. I have a huge reputation for this. Like, look, if you're going to send me a text message, you're rolling the dice. Like, I might see it, but I probably won't because <laughs> I'm on these text threads with my family, which means if I just turn on my phone, like the screen will always be full of text from like my family's text thread. So it's not like I'm going to see yours waiting for me on the screen. And I'm not really in the habit of trying to go back and figure out like, are there new texts since I was last here? And I'm bad at typing on my phone and the screen is cracked anyway. So it doesn't even really work that well. And people just sort of kind of get used to that. Um, and it's okay. You know, they don't hate me. And I don't have to check text messages every two minutes. You know, I think that's something that should be a lot more common. So I'm going to push you even farther. Not only should you, uh, keep a lot of unread text messages so that that alarm red becomes the norm. You should keep a lot of unread text messages because you just don't check them all the time. I have exactly the same situation. I think it all comes down to just having that frank conversation with people that being like, I'm not someone who looks at text messages very often. And there's a good chance if you text me, I'm not going to get back to you straight away. The same way with how a lot of people have email responders that say, I might not check this now or I'm only going to only check this at these certain periods of time because I remember having this conversation with one of my friends who was like a bit upset because I hadn't texted him back and I was and like he like I'm always just so slow at replying because I have this mindset of well if I text back now there's I haven't got time if he then texts back to then get into a conversation I haven't got I haven't allocated this conversation time so I'm just going to leave that until I know that I do have time for this conversation to happen. Um, but we had this conversation and I was basically like, yeah, I'm not very good at texting. If you want to talk to me, let's just book in a time that we can actually have a chat on the phone because it's like via text, it's just like, it's not gonna happen. There's not gonna be an actual conversation that happens there. Especially if your text was, hey, how's it going? It's like, no matter, whatever time I open my phone and answer that, it's gonna be a different answer based on whatever I'm doing at the time. So it's not like, as we talked about earlier, it's like a what like what time are we meeting next week? Which would be an actual definitive answer. It's something that is opening yeah. up that conversation. And uh, but now now with a few of my friends, I basically just said to them like, if you text me, don't expect a response straight away, and it's fine. And it's like they'll text me, and they'll they there's no problem if it takes me two weeks to get back to them. A, I applaud that. Um, and, and B, I, I think you're, you're, you're both doing this exactly the right way. Um, th there's an anger that often comes temporarily. Like you, you probably experienced this. I, I find it to be very similar to when people quit drinking your, you know, your mates that, that enjoy the pub still, they get right. They're upset, yeah. right? Like, what, what do you mean? You're not drinking? Come on, blah, blah, blah. Because partially it, it, it feels implicitly maybe like an accusation or, you know, maybe, maybe, uh, you're drinking too much. A lot of this happens with texting and whatsapp um and 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 i've gotten them all right where where there will be these narratives constructed where somehow text messaging all the time is um 
you know a a noble thing or it's it's a it's a uh it's a type of hidden labor that you know that you are throwing off and other people can't like all these things are thrown at you it's like why are you trying so hard to get me to <laughs> to check my text messages like what does it matter to you I, uh so there is you, you definitely is going to be uh that type of there will be that type of pushback i think but the thing i always advise is replace quantity with qual quality so don't just get rid of okay i'm not accessible to everyone on text messages and that's just that Complement that by saying, but on a less frequent basis, I do much more sort of focused interaction with people I care about. Mm -hmm. You know, non-trivial sacrifice yeah. of time and intention on behalf of people is what really makes us feel strong from a relationship perspective. So if we look at human sociality, really lightweight things like sending text messages back and forth doesn't actually do much in terms of our psychological sense of I feel connected to you. If I spend non-trivial time and energy on your behalf, we, we, I, you know, I put aside a half a day, I go to spend time with you, I bring stuff to you when you're sick, when you're, you know, when your baby is born, I put together a care package and I bring it over instead of just putting a, you know, emoji and a thumbs up on an Instagram post or something like this. You feel actually much more connected. Your relationships are much stronger. So ironically, if you say, okay, yeah, I'm not on WhatsApp and I'm bad with text messages, but I'm a great friend. Like I am going to put aside time for people and really spend time with you and, and we're going to and do things on your behalf and think of you and send you things. You will feel more social and more connected and have stronger social connections than if you're just all day doing the text messages yeah. or all day doing the WhatsApp. So I, this is more like my, my, my last book, Digital Minimalism, but I really get into that, that um, quality over quantity, not only does it make free up a lot of time so that you can spend time on other things that are important, you're going to have an actual richer social life if you make that trade-off. It really reminds me of um, something we talk about quite often in this show is building relationships, especially with an audience. And there's like studies that have been done that show that you need to, basically, someone needs to consume around seven hours worth of your content before a relationship starts to, starts to build there. And this seems to be quite similar in that situation as well. It's like, because I always like to say, if you're, trying to build a relationship with an audience and all you're doing is posting images on Instagram with no captions, then that's going to be, someone's going to see that for two seconds and then scroll on to the next thing. Whereas actually, if you want to build a meaningful relationship and when you think about the kind of creators that you really have an attachment to, it's quite often the people who have podcasts that you'll listen to for hours. So you feel like a relationship's building there or people who create more long form video where you're actually feeling, feeling like you're getting to know that person whilst watching the video. And I suppose it comes down to it's very similar with the text scenario compared to meeting someone in person or having an actual phone call because it's like that's just like little hits that don't really mean anything or they're so small that they don't really register compared to something that's actually going to build a relationship. And I think so much of what we can take away from this is how do we build relationships and what is important? And I think if we can make sure that the relationships we're building and the relationships we're maintaining and nurturing we're actually putting the time in where it matters. I think that's going to be a lot more beneficial to so many relationships rather than all of these little smaller interactions that kind of fake relationships. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the things I'm, I'm thinking about, uh, especially in, in places like the UK or, or here in the US, as, as we, you know, approach a sort of post-pandemic, well-vaccinated summer, uh, this should be a, a, a period in which people are saying, I am actually going to be putting aside an almost absurd amount of time each week for in-person socialization. Yeah. Like to the extent that I'm almost sort of rolling back a little bit my professional ambitions. I'm, I'm not taking on extra projects for this summer. I'm talking about four days a week, four hours a day. Like we need to refill. We need to refill a lot of that uh, that urge for sociality that just was not satiated with 
text yeah. and WhatsApp. So like, I think this should be the summer of, of in-person sociality. It should be, you know, uh, being back at, like being back at university, you know, there after finals were over and everyone was just hanging out type of period type of feel for, for what's coming up in the next few months. It's, it's, it's walks, it's hikes, it's going, getting drinks. It's, you know, taking up new sports, joining gyms just for the sake of it, just so you can be around people, classes for things that like, I don't even really care about this, but let's go learn how to paint. That's what we should be doing in the next few months, just to try to refill that, refill those tanks. You're listening to Creative Rebels, the podcast for creatives. If you're enjoying this episode, please consider subscribing and sharing this podcast in any way that you can. Yeah, I've been talking about that quite a bit recently, like with friends and like different people that I've met, how I need to remember that I have got a bunch of friends and we did used to go out and do things together. And I've now like quite like over the past year, I've been working a lot of the weekends because the time's there and there's nothing else to go and do. Whereas now I'm like, okay, I need to make sure I don't book anything for the weekends because that's the time that I used to go and socialize, have fun and do the things that almost now seem like a, a distant memory. But things that I'm like, I need to make sure that this is what I do going forward because I know how important relationships are. Maybe it's a good time to take a break from your social media accounts. Like, let me, let me get rid of that option of like, I can just kind of sit back and scroll and, and, uh, and comment on things. Okay. Get rid of that option. Maybe unsubscribe from your streaming services for a few months. Like maybe we need to force ourselves like, okay, I have no real option here except for I need to get someone and go do something because otherwise I'm bored. And I think a good way to do that as well, just go on your phone, look at your screen time for the past week, look at how many hours you spent on social media platforms and then say next week, I'm going to spend that socializing with real people rather than just spending time on this app yeah because you have no social media whatsoever do you cal although i did uh, i did follow you earlier on clubhouse so i guess that that kind of works into the realm of social media but um have you i mean do people call you crazy for having no social media is there kind of a pushback on it i mean there used to be a huge pushback so uh i mean talk about you know your pub mates being upset <laughs> when you stop drinking um at first I got, I would get serious pushback. The fact that I, I had no social media accounts and that shifted in the U S right around after Donald Trump was elected. So it's this really interesting sort of experience is that I, I sort of famously, uh, had never used social media and people would get very upset about this, right? Like they would challenge me to debates and they would be whatever in the fall of 2016, for example, I had a, an op-ed in the New York times that was saying something negative about social media. It was like, um, young people, they put too much emphasis on social media when they're thinking about career advancement, mm-hmm. right? That like somehow their social media presence is really important, but actually they should craft and skill is way, way more important. You would have think that I had come out and said like, we need to, we need to ban baseball or something like that. The New York times actually ran a response op-ed the next week. It, it created such an uproar that someone was saying something negative about social media is that they went and solicited an op-ed to countermine. It was from like the social media manager at monster.com or something. And it was like, well, no, Cal Newport is wrong. Like social media is important for your, uh, magazines wrote articles about it. They're like this guy, there was ambushes. I would go on radio and they'd be like, and now here is an artist who uses social media. Like people were really upset about it. Right. This was, um, like early, late 2016 by 2017 had it all flipped right and people are like yes social media i'm tired of it you're right this ted talk i had done on quitting social media uh had 
all of a sudden took off and millions and millions of views. I wrote another op-ed for the New York Times a little bit later, uh, no complaints. And it was, you know, it was anti-social media. So people used to really be upset or challenged or confused by the fact that I said, I don't see a real purpose for me to use this. And again, I think it was the presidential election, in the U.S. that changed people's mindset here, because before that, you know, wherever you were on the political spectrum in the U.S., a lot of people were just conceptually filing social media away as this sort of exuberant new technology that's cool. Like that's where it was filed in their brain. The election shifted it for everyone to a sort of suspect category, right? Mm. So people on the the sort of in the U.S. would be the political left. I know this can get reversed in different countries, but the the sort of more liberal side were like, wait a second, I think Donald Trump used social media. So they're like, okay, maybe this is not just all good. And people on the the political right in the U.S. were getting um, concerned that they were being censored, that some of this was around the around the election. So they moved it out of the, this is just great, to like, hmm, I'm not so sure about yeah. this. And as soon as people moved it into this category of like, maybe there's a problem with social media, they started noticing all these other issues just like in their own lives. Like, well, wait a second, I'm on this all the time. So anyways, it was like a night and day thing. It happened in about six months. And so I was hated on, hated on, hated on, suddenly lauded. Like, yes, of course. <laughs> why, why are we using this so much? So it's, it's funny how culture shifts. I think what's interesting as well is, is social media hasn't been around that long. And people worked and did business and economies happened for hundreds of years before social media was a thing. So it's like, if you have a business, you don't necessarily need social media to succeed on it. Obviously, there is a huge market of potential there for people who, and like, I would definitely advocate as an artist to get your work out through social media. But I 100% agree with what you were saying about younger people there just thinking that social media is the answer for everything. And they think that by putting a small amount of time into a platform, you can get famous and then it's gonna everything's going to be nice and easy because they've seen a few people do that before. Uh, and I've kind of got the suspect that these social media platforms purposely allow people to get famous to allow other people to see, oh, well, they got famous easily. I'm going to stay on this platform to go and do that too. Um, whereas mm -hmm. so much, yeah. whereas like the thing, number one thing to do, exactly as you said there, is develop your craft and skill. Because it's like by putting in yeah. the time in getting better, if you're the best at what you do, or you're at least the best in your area or your niche or whatever, you're going to get employed for doing that thing, whether you've got a social media platform or not, because people will be searching for what you have. And like quite often they'll go to Google if you've got a certain service anyway. It's like we always talk about like our main business, Graffiti Life. Most So we have a big social media platform on there that we've got pretty like 55,000 followers. I've not looked at it for so long because we don't really use it anymore. But we get all of our jobs through people searching it on Google. Like the social media element of it, yes, it might look like we have a big account and people just assume that we get jobs through there. But that's not what that's not what actually is happening. And we're actually spending more time on yeah. developing the skill, developing the craft, working on the areas where people are actually finding that. So I think it is so important that anyone who is younger or, or even just starting a business or starting anything don't put all of their eggs in that social media basket because it isn't the way. Well, I mean, so so widespread, like sort of ubiquitous social media use is about eight years old, right? And so, yeah, it's a really good question. Okay, um, did your industry exist more than eight years ago? Mm -hmm. Okay, how did people used to get, you know, noticed and grow their careers nine years ago? And then the follow-up question is, has all of those channels gone away? 
Because typically the answer is no, right? I mean, I, I, like I see this with writers sometimes. Like, well, obviously social media is going to be the only way to succeed as a writer. And like social media has existed for eight years. We've had professional writing for about 300. I don't think in the last eight years, all of the main ways in which like talent was developed and noticed and, and, and you know, uh, spread, all this have gone away, right? Uh, but what we think that way and, and then it can take your eye off the prize. So I have a friend who's a, a pretty successful comedian. And he was having real psychological issues with Twitter in the sense that it was really making him anxious and upset. And at some point, he's like, you know, Cal, I was uh, thinking about it. Every break I've ever gotten came from someone was at one of my shows and said it was good. Like, he's like, it's nothing. It's never been a break because someone's like, I, I see you on Twitter. Um, do you want to come do this TV pilot? He's like, no, it was my craft. And people would see the craft and they'd come to the show. And they say, this was good. And I'm a producer and you look talented. Let's do something together. It had nothing to do uh, with the social media presence, but he was so sure that that was necessary. And there's also this, there's an assiduous nature to social media that I think is worth pointing out. So even if you're using it, just so you're, you're careful about, careful about its impact is that web 2.0 was a really important revolution in terms of communication. And that's when the internet introduced tools that made it easier for individuals to actually not only create content, but to interact about other people's content. So this was the web 2.0 revolution that happened starting around 2004, 2005, right? Where the internet went from static web pages that like companies would put up to blogger, right? Like I can write something and not only can I write something, but you can subscribe to it in a feed and you can come and leave a comment. And so I think it was a very important revolution. What social media was really offering when it came along and, and sort of hijacked web 2.0 they said at the time that they were just bringing ease of use. Like, well, look, Facebook is an even easier interface than trying to set up a blog and, and figure that out. We, we made, we've made it really easy so you can really streamline expression. You can really streamline like connecting to other people. But what they were really offering was we will collectivize attention. If you have a blog in the early Web 2.0 days, it's very difficult to actually get people to pay attention to what you have to say, right? And and uh, if it wasn't really interesting or authentic or well-crafted, like you probably, no one would pay attention at all, right? Uh, and, and it was a bit of a winner-take-all type market like that. And, and what like something like Facebook offered was uh, a social contract in which no matter what you write, your friends will comment on it. And then whatever they write, you'll comment on it. And we'll all just spread attention to each other. And now we can all get this this that feeling we crave of like, oh, someone is paying attention to me and what I'm working on. Nowadays with social media, they've become much more craven about that. And they've just completely algorithmatized that. Like on TikTok now, they'll literally just algorithmically say, we need to give this many views to this person this week so that they stay hooked. And then they'll go and expose your video to 10,000 people so they can get 700 because they have a, a slot machine style algorithm that's like, we have to give you an exactly titrated amount of attention from people to keep you coming back to the, the platform and feeling like you're on to something. So it, at first it was just a social contract. Like we all follow each other and the social contract of Facebook yeah. is that everyone comments on everyone else's thing. And now it's actually just algorithmatized, but this removes the drive. If you're a creative, right? That, that I want people to pay attention to what I'm doing. That's a very important drive for doing the hard work of building craft and skill and doing something authentic. It gets diluted when you have these platforms say, well, we can give that to you without the really having yeah. to master your craft part. We'll give you a good enough simulacrum of that that will satisfy, satisfy that urge, just like junk food satisfies your urge to hunger. And I think it can actually really reduce the amount of original creative work that comes out there. Yeah, I think it all comes down to, it, it's like email, social media, everything is always just seems like a bit of, it seems too easy. 
I feel like if the barrier to entry is just like anyone can do it, then that's probably not the best way to do it because anyone can kind of just dip into that. And I think it's almost like a that get rich quick scheme of actually you don't have to go and put in the hard work. You can just do the bare minimum and expect success. It never works that way. It all comes down to the hard work. It all comes down to the craft. It all comes down to the creativity, the work you put into it. Like if it's if it is that easy, like it's just not going to work in the way that you want it to. Yeah, and I mean you you wrote so good um so good that they can't ignore you and I I think that's that was kind of my takeaway from that is is like perfecting the craft and when you do the power of the work that you make will it will organically be shared. Um, it's like if I had no social media presence, I know that my paintings in the street are good enough that they would have a social media presence in that people would take photos of them and sh- still share them whether I had an account or yeah. not. Well, that to me, that's the most important application of social media to artists, for example, or creatives, is it makes it easier for other people to talk about your work if you do something good. The, the benefit you get from just yelling about your own work is really quite muted. It's it, so like I have no social media accounts. I'm sure social media has been very good to me and my books 100%. because it has allowed people to spread the word about yep. my books. But me just yelling at my audience, I have a book, I have a book, I have a book. I mean, my audience is going to buy my book anyways, right? I mean, people who like me. Okay, so I could take the people who like me and are going to buy my book anyways and have them read my tweets all day. But they were going to buy the book anyways. And me yelling at them that my book is coming out on Twitter for four months, it's really not going to change much, right, in the long run. The ability for everyone else to pass around the book might be useful. So I think for creatives in particular, that's a great way to think about it. Create something that these networks out here can then spread and worry maybe a little bit less about you yourself, you know, yelling from the the, the stand, hey, look at my new thing. I think when our book comes out, we certainly <laughs> will still be yelling. If you're a, a young writer now and you were just trying to get your first book published or just trying to get make a name for yourself as a writer, what would your approach be? Would it involve social media or would you go down a different route? Well, so first of all, topic matters. But, but I will tell you on the insider baseball perspective, I mean, the publishing industry is much more interested, for example, in email lists than they are social media followers. Social media followers, perhaps not surprisingly, do not translate well into book sale numbers. Mm-hmm. Email list subscriber counts do, right? So if you have uh, 100,000 people on a mailing list is a incredibly powerful thing for a book. If you have 100,000 total followers between a few social media platforms, it might not do much at all. Uh, so if you're in the sort of pragmatic nonfiction space where like platforms matter, this or that, I would think more about building a platform on some of the more sort of non-consolidated platforms. Like I do podcasting, I do essays. These are things where you own your own servers. You you are you are in charge. You're not producing content for a company that then chops it up and tries to sell it to people using other types of algorithms. Um, you know, I would I would probably focus on the things I can control. Um, if you are going to use social media, use it very carefully. I, I point towards people like Ryan Holiday or James Clears. These are sort of writers in my same cohort I know. They use social media, but very disciplined, right? Like, so Ryan, he'll have these daily quotes posted on Twitter and they're, they're stoicism quotes. And like, actually, that's a really smart use of social media for Ryan because people see him as a stoicism guy. And they're like, this is great. I subscribe to his, his Twitter feed and see these quotes. But he's not on Twitter reading 
or sending political tweets or going back and forth with readers. James Clear does something similar. He has like this very rigorous, like this is what I post on here. And I think they batch this stuff up in advance and it kind of gets titrated out. That's fine if you want to use these things as sort of a broadcast platform for your audience as you build it. But the thing to really avoid is by being on here and interacting with other people on here, this is going to be critical to me building up an audience and selling books. I think you're going to end up worse off because it's going to suck up so much cognitive energy that you could be putting into being so good you can't ignore you that you are doubly hurting yourself. You're spending time on something that's not that helpful and taking time away from the stuff that really is. Yeah, it reminds me of um, something that I heard about someone said, are you a creator or are you a consumer? And I think it's having that mindset of like, am I going to be the person who sits on there consuming it or am I going to be the person who creates it and then leaves? And I think, because it's like, if you're going to spend seven hours a day on a social media platform or platform, you could just spend two minutes on it, post the work and then spend the other six hours and 58 minutes actually honing that craft, working on the next piece to post. Yeah. And and a, a quick useful rule here is the 20 year old off the street rule. So whenever you're spending time on anything, ask yourself the question, if I just grabbed a 20 year old off the street, could they do what I'm doing right now? And if the answer is yes, then you shouldn't spend too much time doing that because it's not an application of a hard one skill and therefore the returns you're getting are not going to be that great. Most of what people do when they're on social media, I'm, I'm sort of like sending out pithy quotes and talking to people and trying to dunk on people. Any 20 year old off the street can do that. You're not actually deploying a hard one skill. So if you're an artist that has mastered a particular medium, you have a particular visual idiom for which you're known and it, it's, it's, you've, you've taken years for you to hone. By far, you want to spend as much of your time as possible applying that craft and improving that craft because that's a rare and valuable skill. So the the returns you're going to get from that investment of time are going to be much larger than time you're spent, let's say, arguing with someone about you know uh, uh, Brexit on Twitter or something like that because you're not applying any hard-won skills. You're not improving any hard-won skills. And so you're going to get a much lower return. And, and that's what I said in that original New York Times piece that got everyone mad at me is you know nothing that any 16-year-old can do is going to somehow alchemize into a lot of career success, right? You have to be doing something rare and valuable if you want to expect rare and valuable things in return. Well, one thing that I do with my with my Instagram is I do take the time to reply to every single comment that I get. Um, and that's typically between 60 and 100 comments. And it probably takes me, I don't know, probably about 15 or 20 minutes. Um, and it is a chore and I don't enjoy it until I get the comment where someone actually says something where they ask me a question or they they challenge me in some way where I can actually have where I can actually like write something that's that's interesting to them for the for the most part it's like a lot of flame emojis where I just have to like do an emoji back and it's kind of uh this this sort of um drudgery um could you talk a little bit about you because you describe it in the book the the very caveman brainy type behavior of when we know that we have, so almost like me ignoring all of my 153 text messages, what goes on when we are consciously aware that we are ignoring someone who's trying to make contact with us? Yeah, I mean, our brains, they're not evolved for mass communication. Uh, and this idea that there is hundreds, if not thousands of people who can communicate with you in a sort of low stakes context is not something that our brains understand because it was not to be found in the context in which our brains evolved. And so the notion of here's someone who's left me a message, it's in my inbox, it's in my text message thread, it's a comment on Instagram, and I'm, it's there, and more of those are piling up, and I'm not responding to them right now, makes us very uncomfortable. And that's because we have this deeper sort of paleolithic social circuits in our brain that says, yeah, you got to 
really be careful about your one-on-one -on -one relationships within the tribe. That's critical to your survival. You can try to explain to that part of your brain, oh, no, no, we're not in Paleolithic tribes anymore. These are emails, and uh, we don't have a response time expectation in this company, and no one's going to be upset about this. That part of your brain doesn't care. It's like you're ignoring tribe members alert. Just like if you're feeling that primal hunger because you haven't eaten recently, trying to explain to your brain, I have a lunch reservation in two hours. Don't worry, we're not going to starve. You don't have to feel hungry. It's not going to listen to you. Same thing. You can't tell that ancient social network. Don't be anxious about miscommunication because this is, we will get back to these people. They're not really expecting to hear from us. You, you can't rationalize these deeper seated drives. And so it's one of the reasons why this current world of low friction mass communication, where everyone can talk to everyone and we have more incoming messages and requests and communication than any human in the history of the world has ever had to face before, is a bad fit for our brain. And the result is we feel anxious about this. Even if we don't even know that's the source of anxiety, it is uh, it is a source of background humming anxiety. And with so much coming in, how do we decide what is actually worth spending our time on? Because obviously, if we've got 100 different things coming in, we can either have a hundred of these little mini conversations going on. How do we actually pick out which are the ones worth spending our time on? I mean, you have to re you have to reduce helps, right? So, like in the context of just business communication, as you move away from the hyperactive hive mind, you no longer get this extreme effect of messages piling up. Messages pile up when you're involved in twenty five different back and forth asynchronous conversations. When those all get moved into more structured meetings and task boards and protocols. Now the email inbox becomes, oh, it's things, files that people are sending me information broadcast. They're, they're not from individuals or they're, they're much less frequent. I don't feel like people are waiting for me. They don't feel like things are piling up, right? So uh, that helps in the professional context. Outside the professional context, you can lop off sources of incoming communication. Like the fact that I don't use social media, that's a lot of different sort of incoming communication that I don't have to deal with. I used to have a general purpose email address for my readers because I did like interacting with them. I did like answering questions, but it became overwhelming. And at some point it was psychologically much better to just shut down that address and say, like, I just don't really, I don't have the ability for you to just reach me in general for me to answer questions was psychologically much better than you can send the questions and I'm answering just some of them and I'm doing it kind of poorly. That was psychologically very stressful, right? So just eliminating actually more of this overwhelming incoming communication from your life in the first place that's probably the right way to go about it. The more you can actually cut that back, the less pressure that paleolithic social circuit is going to feel. That really reminds me of when we first started the podcast, because it's like we got to a stage where we were getting so many emails from people asking us these questions. And David was spending so much time replying to all these different people that we were like, okay, instead of trying to do that, let's just put our efforts into the podcast so we can just answer all those questions at mass. And then it's like that scales because it's like anyone who stumbles across the podcast now can go through, consume all of our episodes and hopefully get all of the answers that they could ever possibly think of. Yet questions still do come in, but it's like, but you can always just say, like, you can go and listen to this episode rather than have to spend all of your time. Like, it, it gets, it's hard, isn't it? Because I think as humans, we want to help other people and we can't help every single person by physically having that conversation. So if you do want to help people, how can you scale that help yeah. and how can you provide value where people can find it and it doesn't require your actual time to go into that. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and that works. And so, and like, I don't, the email addresses I have now as an author, 
there's just not an option of an address for, let me send you a question. Like here's an address for tips, basically like articles, links, books you think I might like. I love to see those send it here, but I can't respond to the messages. People are fine with that. Uh, if it's a speaking gig, if it's a publicity thing, an interview or something, use this address for this, use this address. So there's really clear addresses for various things, but there is no address for just ask me your question about, you know, your career advice question or your, your student question or, or how to deal with the whatever. And just having those expectations clear, the audience is fine. They just like the clarity of it. Like, okay, so this is, this is how, uh, and I think that the definitive word on this is Neil Stevenson, his famous essay about why I'm a bad correspondent, where he basically said, look, I can't, I can't answer fan mail. I'm not going to come to your conventions. I'm not going to, um, you know, I'm not going to come and do interviews or whatever, because if I do a lot of that, what I'm left with is a lot of these sort of one-on-one -on -one interactions, but that makes it impossible for me to write books. So if I don't do any of that, what I get instead is one big book, but that one big book will be read by hundreds of thousands of mm -hmm. people. That's actually more useful than having a hundred one-on-one interactions over the next six month period. And so this is why uh, I, 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 my default answer is no. And there's a really important essay I've talked about in a couple of my books now, um, because the logic there is airtight. Uh, writing books that stand the test of time was gonna be a much higher positive impact on the world than being really uh, prompt at responding to fan mail and going to a bunch of fan. Yeah, hundred percent. Again, yeah, again, it comes back to the work being the most important thing. Um, you describe in the book um, Mayor Angelou basically going hermit and cutting everything off when when she went to write. Is that a process that that you kind of go through when you're writing your books? Because I, I know I know the latest one took. Did it take you four years to write? So obviously you're not going to spend the whole of that time in a cabin in the woods. Um, but how important, like, how do you, how do you work and how important is it for creatives to find that space and carve that space and cut out those, those distractions? I mean, it's a great way to do it. There, there's different models of this deep work. So my book, Deep Work, I kind of go through different models about how people schedule sort of intense cognitive work time versus other time. So one of those models, the Maya Angelou model, is what we call the monastic philosophy of, of scheduling this time. And that's where it's really... I'm going to go to a place with no distractions or minimal distractions for a long period of time and do high output production. I wish I could do that. I think it's incredibly effective. It is typically reserved for literary fiction authors are able to do this. They can build their whole lives. It's socially and culturally and professionally acceptable for fiction writers to build their whole lives around novel writing. And like, I don't do many other things when I'm writing. I can't be reached. Uh, some visual artists can do this as well athletes can do this as well sometimes like preparing for you know a season or something like that but it's very difficult in almost any other profession then there's the bimodal philosophy which is okay there's periods in which all i'm doing is working and then periods in which i'm not doing the creative work and those sessions might be like one to three days you know like okay i'm gone all for all friday i'm in my shed or friday through monday i'm away and then i'm back at the office i use a method that uh, called the journalistic method which is way more ad hoc you know um when do I have time this week to write? Good. Let me protect that and get after it when I can. Just like a journalist has to write when they have to write. Like, okay, I got the sources. This article's due tomorrow. Let's just go for it. I use that because basically I have, uh, you know, I have a full-time job as a professor and, and I'm writing and I have a bunch of kids and I have the the business built around my book, the, the sort of media company built around my writing. And so right now I don't have the luxury really of the monastic or even bimodal approach. So I just write when I can. But I am used to this since I've been doing it my entire adult life is that I'm uncomfortable if I'm not always writing, maybe not every day, but I'm every week I'm always looking like, where's their good writing opportunities? Where's their good time for me to write? 
Um, and so I'm always trying to squeeze in writing and just let that add up over time. I think that's really interesting because I think, like I find it as well, so I think as soon as you found the thing that it is you love, you will make time for that to happen and you always look for the time where you can fit that in. And I think that's really important if someone's not in that stage where they have that thing that they just, they can't wait to fit into something to try and find that because, and like you can find that obviously in numerous ways by just experimenting with loads of different things. But it's, I think as soon as you found that thing that you want to fill the time with, like that's when you're onto a really good path of I've found my thing and I want to do this all the time. Yeah. Well, with, with writing, this is common. It's the division between people who are writing about something that else that they love versus people who love writing, right? Because in writing, this the weird thing about this particular creative act, unlike any other creative act, is that, that, that there's a lot of situations where someone is going to write a book about something else they do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the other thing they do is what they really love. For them, writing is a huge chore, right? Uh, whenever I hear someone say, yeah, the six weeks before my book were due, I was just working on this all the time to try to make the deadline. I'm like, oh, that's a non, that's a non-professional writer, right? That's someone who, this was a chore they're trying to get through. They will often look at those of us who actually just love to write themselves and be like, how, are, how do you write? Why do you write so many books? And aren't you exhausted? And why are you signing another book deal right away after finishing that? Like, and we see it the opposite. It's like, well, what would I do if I had a long period of time where I wasn't writing? Like, that would be really weird. Like, why would I want that in my life? Mm. And so writing is interesting in that way because it's a, it's a creative skill where you have people who, who uh, are artists in that skill, but it's also a creative skill where people who are artists in other fields will come into the do temporarily to try to talk more about that other field. And it's such a different experience. I'm very glad that you do write all of these books because, um, yeah, both of us are big fans. Could you let our listeners know where they can find any details about the book? Uh, so calnewport.com, that's where I write my weekly essay that I, I send out on an email newsletter. I've been doing that since 2007. And then I have a podcast called Deep Questions where I talk about all these type of topics twice a week. And so between those two, those two venues, you can you can sort of get all the Cal Newport you need. The books can be found uh, wherever wherever you prefer to buy books. Brilliant! Thank you so much. Amazing. <laughs>